Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, November 17th, 2015, and I am Jeff Salzman coming to you from the heart of Integral Valley, Boulder, Colorado. I'm here, as always, with the producer of the Daily Evolver, Brett Walker. Hey, Brett, say hi to the people. Hi, people. <laughs> Tonight, despite our frivolity, uh, we're going to look at really a depressing story, this, this distressing story that continues to develop in Paris and around the world, set off by the attacks in that city last Friday. And I have to say, when things like this happen, I'm really grateful to have an integral lens to look at things and see things more deeply and see the bigger patterns and broader, you know, forces uh, that are at work in the situation. So that's what we'll attempt to do tonight. I want to extend a special welcome to those of you who are listening live on Integral Radio and give a tip of the hat to Corey DeVos, who is handling the feed over there and who developed Integral Radio out of Integral Life, and also to put in a good word for Integral Life, which is uh, the leading web portal for the integral world. It's the home of Ken Wilbur and his work. You know, it's it's a membership model. It's 100 bucks a year. It's well worth it. They're putting out really great stuff, including a new thing that Ken's doing that where he's actually sort of taking the role of an integral teacher in the more indigenous uh, integral kind of spiritual path. Uh, and it's the, wh what's the product? Yeah, Brett? full spectrum mindfulness. Full spectrum mindfulness. Yeah, if you go to fullspectrummindfulness.com, you can... Uh, register and you get some free content uh, which is some pretty cool stuff and then if you actually decide to do the course it's uh, something you do at your own pace online there's all these different modules they're all videos of ken that's uh, pretty cool yeah cool yeah so check that out full spectrum mindfulness all right so now let's look at this story out of paris that has really galvanized the world and in case you've been in a cave uh, last friday three teams of terrorists, Islamic jihadists, attacked a nightclub, a soccer game, and a series of cafes in Paris, leaving somewhere around 200 dead. Uh, there are still people who are critically injured and so forth. If we look at this from an integral view, we, you know, we're always trying to find the, the biggest context, the, the biggest pattern to fit an event like this in so that we could just see it more clearly. I have always said it's like the, the Google map. You can actually turn the resolution up and see more of what's happening. So from the biggest perspective, we often hear of what's going on between the Muslim world and the West, or at least the radical Muslim world in the West, is a clash of civilizations. And that's true. As long as we stipulate that, if I may mangle Mark Twain a bit, History is just one goddamn clash of civilizations after the other. And that's one of the things that humans do. We've been warring for as long as we've been mammals. Fighting and making love. <laughs> the two Fs, if you know what I mean. But, you know, this is, first of all, you know, it's not like we did something wrong as a, as a human species, that we have some flaw. I mean, we're actually crawling up out of the swamps. And apparently, this, you know, sort of chaotic system is how the creator of the universe intended it, because there's no exceptions. So thanks, God. Uh, but 
So using integral theory, we can see that in, in some ways it's better to think of this as a clash of development, a clash of developmental altitudes or stages. And this is really a key concept in integral, and I would encourage those of you who are new or need a little help in following that you would go to my site, dailyevolver.com, and there's a section. In fact, we have the new site is up. We're not publicizing yet, but the new Daily Evolver, just between us kids, it's up. And there's a section called, what is it called again, Brett? About integral theory. About integral theory. You have to scroll down just a bit and click that, and you'll see two charts. One is the altitudes of development, and the other is the quadrants of reality. And these are two key charts that I refer to and use the jargon of it. It's sort of inescapable. So if you want to pull those up, you can. They're PDFs. You can print them out, whatever. So at any rate, when we talk about this clash of development uh, that's going on, uh, it's basically between, again, in the simplest terms, the modern and postmodern world and the pre-modern world, sort of the world of traditionalism, the warrior cultures, the tribal cultures, versus modern, postmodern cultures. And particularly located in that cusp between the modern and traditional pre-modern world. Now, the di distinguishing characteristics between these two worlds is that pre-modern people are religious, ethnocentric, patriarchal, and violent. Modern people tend to be secular, nation or world-centric, pluralistic, and less violent. Now, the problem is 70% of the population of the world is pre-modern. And for the most part, you know, pre-modern people are distributed throughout the world. In modern cultures, we have in, in America probably 30, 40% of the people are pre-modern. But when you have a majority or a center of gravity that's pre-modern, then you have a culture that is organized around magic and myth, great mythic religious stories. These are the psychological and spiritual structures of the consciousness of the people in the culture, of the culture collectively, to use the quadrants, these are the upper left and lower left quadrants. They live in a world that is lit up by the glory of God, that is their foremost identity. All authority flows from the holy writings, the holy book, and when the book disagrees with science or other means of knowing, like is the age of the earth, for instance, or God forbid evolution, then in those situations, faith trumps facts. Uh, and in fact, they see the world of science as part of the great cosmic battle that they're in, because this is another characteristic of pre-modern thinking, is that they are as individuals and as cultures in a great spiritual struggle against the forces of darkness. And they see that an apocalypse, depending on you know, how fundamental they are, fundamentalist they are, the, an apocalypse is necessary. It's not only you know, not to be avoided, it's necessary uh, to bring forth uh, the new world and kingdom of God. And again, this is, we see this in the West, there's an energy that animates a pre-modern political force in America. And I would say that there is a very significant percentage of Americans, you know, 20% maybe, who are actually juicing for a fight with Islam. And at least in a certain abstract way, who think we would win 
and that the world would be better off for it. So this is not a bug in the system of the pre-modern mind. This is the essence of the structure itself. And you can't change this any more than you can change an 8-year-old into a 12-year-old. People at all ages and stages get to be who they are, but what we want is for them to be healthy, just like a child. You know, you can't, an 8-year-old is not a defective 12-year-old, but an 8-year-old and a 12-year-old and an 18-year-old and on up can be more or less healthy. And unfortunately, in the Middle East at the moment, the patient is very unhealthy. Uh, it's due to a ton of reasons, to be sure, including, you know, the clashes of colonialism and well, you know, just the clashes with the West dating back to the Crusades and probably before. And then exacerbated with the Iraq War in 2003 that took the lid off um, in Iraq and, um, you know, our sort of mismanagement of that process since. Uh, and because of these things and, and, and many more. Uh, a lot of the Muslim world has been arrested and is indeed in a functional re regression, it, it, particularly in the lower quadrants. So we could see this from an integral perspective as, you know, it's, it, it, I hate to say this, but it's a right-on-schedule conflict of a world that is developing and that some cultures are ahead of others. And again, that clashes of civilizations and cultures have been part of the fabric, part of the engine uh, the, you know, the friction, as, as brutal as it is, that that causes is part of what has moved humanity forward. I, I don't agree with the system. I think God got it wrong, but here we are. The good news is, is that for modern people, we have created pluralistic societies that are safe and prosperous, uh, you know, on a good day, where individuals are seen as sovereign over their own lives, and this was a hard-fought achievement of humanity. We, we went through our holy wars, too, in Western Europe. And they were brutal, and they were long, and they were not that different, certainly in mentality, and often in practice, when you get down to the beheadings and the you know, burning alive and all of that stuff. That's just plain vanilla red warrior activity. And it's a stage of development. And in this particularly virulent strain of pre-modernism, this awakened warrior in the Middle East, it wakes a lot of people up, particularly young people, particularly men who want to make their mark. They see that there's no place for them or their God, which is the animating principle of their lives. There's no place for them in the modern world, and that's an accurate assessment, uh, which is one that we integralists have to, you know, one part of our contribution is to help the modern world accommodate that in a healthy way. At any rate, this is not you know, some inexplicable barbarity that arose out of Paris. And no, the world is not on fire. Though in certain neighborhoods in Paris last week, it, it certainly was. And that's something that we have to, um, you know, make sure we remember as we look at these big abstract principles. 200 people are, every one of them is gone. And their families are suffering. And that that is as bad as it gets. And so, and we see in Syria what's happening. Never in the history of the world has it been worse than being in a war zone. War zones are war zones. So it's still happening. And, you know, that's the discouraging part and depressing part for sure. So we can see that just, you know, as we continue to look at this and particularly look at the specifics of the politics of this 
moment in time, that Paris is a prime, it, you know, it's sort of a sour point in, in the world. It's, it's, I heard one security expert say that he was shocked but not surprised by the attacks in Paris. Uh, and there are a couple characteristics of Paris that make it particularly vulnerable. One is that previous waves of Muslim immigrants have created pre-modern amber enclaves in the middle of modern culture, surrounded by modern culture, and not permeable, certainly not permeable enough. So, you know, you have pre-modern, prone to violence thinking in, the, in this modern culture. And then secondly, France is assertively, and some might even say aggressively, modern and secular. They're maybe the country in the world that carries the flag of the Enlightenment project, uh, where the world becomes rational and secular, and these crazy, you know, as Voltaire said, remember the cruelties of these pre-modern cultures. So you have that is the sort of flavor and personality of the modern surrounding areas, and then the pre-modern Muslim, where apostasy is a huge sin. You know, leaving you can't leave Islam, particularly in the pre-modern Islam milieu. It's a capital sin. So part of what drives them crazy is seeing these Muslims become Western. And, I, and my understanding is that the clubs and cafes that the terrorists targeted were the ones that were often frequented by Muslims who were losing their culture. So that's another factor. And then, of course, there is a real red war just down the street in Syria, and that's just 2,000 miles away through Turkey. And it is, as I said a minute ago, as brutal and chaotic as a war zone can be. And red loves chaos. So it's drawing and, um, and, and, and training a, a bad strain. And so it's an unhealthy mixture of karmic cultural forces that we can see um, arising in Paris. And we can see the same um, forces at work in many other places, including America. So I'm afraid we do want to fasten our seatbelts at this point. So just some thoughts about this uh, from an integral perspective, no particular order, uh, but I'll share them with you. Uh, one is the media's response, the world's media response. And I'm particularly, of course, uh, sensitive to what's going on here in the United States. And what we hear is that this is the worst attack on Europe since World War II. And that has become a mantra on uh, MSNBC and CNN and Fox News for sure. And even, you know, on the left, even from John Oliver, who I had hoped would know better than to lead with this, it's the worst attack in Europe since World War II. Uh, because, you know, that statement is, while technically true, perhaps, actually obscures more than it reveals. Because we had 60 million people die in World War II, and we have fewer than 200 who have died here. And what is actually revealed in those statistics is the astonishingly pacifying effect of modernity on modern populations. And furthermore, it's, it's interesting, and, and I think a, a good sign, that with the history that humanity has had, that still 200 deaths can truly shock us. And it should. And yet, I have to say, I wonder how CNN would have covered D-Day 
You know, you can only get so hysterical about these things. So at any rate, welcome to modernity, where ever smaller dangers trigger ever greater responses. And this is an intelligence of modernity. I mean, we can sort of roll our eyes from a historical perspective, but hey, this is a good thing. Part of it is that there is something truly new here to be concerned about. This is, as far as I can tell, the first really coordinated terrorist attack on soft targets. You know, we talk about asymmetric warfare, where modern cultures can fight with, you know, modern weaponry. But pre-modern cultures, um, you know, they don't have uh, organized armies, they don't have satellites in the air, they don't have logistics, they don't have headquarters, they're making it up as they go along. And so they have to fight with earlier stages of weaponry. Um, now, of course, they're using rifles and they're using suicide vests and using gunpowder and bomb-making materials. But that they can sort of wander in to our you know, public spaces. One of the great things about modernity is that we have these, you know, we have this social compact where we can be in public spaces and not worry. But this shows us that we can. And I always sort of, even there, uh, but I'll share them with you. Uh, one is the media's response, the world's media response. And I'm particularly, of course, uh, sensitive to what's going on here in the United States. And what we hear is that this is the worst attack on Europe since World War II. And that has become a mantra on uh, MSNBC and CNN and Fox News for sure. And even, you know, on the left, even from John Oliver, who I had hoped would know better than to lead with this, it's the worst attack in Europe since World War II. Uh, because, you know, that statement is, while technically true, perhaps, actually obscures more than it reveals. Because we had 60 million people die in World War II, and we have fewer than 200 who have died here. And what is actually revealed in those statistics is the astonishingly pacifying effect of modernity on modern populations. And furthermore, it's, it's interesting, and, and I think a, a good sign, that with the history that humanity has had, that still 200 deaths can truly shock us. And it should. And yet, I have to say, I wonder how CNN would have covered D-Day. You know, you can only get so hysterical about these things. So at any rate, welcome to modernity, where ever smaller dangers trigger ever greater responses. And this is an intelligence of modernity. I mean, we can sort of roll our eyes from a historical perspective, but hey, this is a good thing. Part of it is that there is something truly new here to be concerned about. This is, as far as I can tell, the first really coordinated terrorist attack on soft targets. You know, we talk about asymmetric warfare, where modern cultures can fight with, you know, modern weaponry. But pre-modern cultures, um, you know, they don't have uh, organized armies, they don't have satellites in the air, they don't have logistics, they don't have headquarters, they're making it up as they go along. And so they have to fight with earlier stages of weaponry. 
Uh, now, of course, they're using rifles and they're using suicide vests and using gunpowder and bomb-making materials. But that they can sort of wander in to our you know, public spaces. One of the great things about modernity is that we have these, you know, we have this social compact where we can be in public spaces and not worry. But this shows us that we can. And I always sort of, even military strategy that we're embracing here as, as in the United States and in the West and NATO and, and basically the modern Western world in general. And what we realize and this, we've learned a lot, really, in the last 12, 15 years since 9-11. And, of course, we had the 2003 invasion of Iraq under George W. Bush. And what we realized, there were a lot of people who thought that once Saddam Hussein was deposed, that the Iraqis would, as, as Dick Cheney said, they would greet us as liberators. A lot of people thought that. And what we realized is that there's a certain faux modernity that is laid on a lot of pre-modern cultures with faux modern dictators. That is, dictators like Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi um, or the Shah of Iran, who can operate in the modern world and do business with the West. And, you know, their women are modern and they fly around on jets and they drink when they're out of the country and all of that good stuff. But when it comes right down to it, they're operating from a red interior. So they have basically a mafia view of uh, brutally subjugating their own people. And when you remove the lid of the dictator, it's not like people pop up to modernity. These people still are at the tribal and, and traditional uh, fundamentalist stage of development. And so you basically have taken the lid off of a Pandora's box. And, you know, as Colin Powell warned before the Iraq invasion, uh, he warned of what he called the pottery barn principle. If you break it, you bought it. And so, you know, in a sense, we did in Iraq. And there was, you know, there was progress. There was, uh, with the surge, there was a, a certain stability and pacification happening in Iraq. And then Obama came along, and he probably overcorrected. He abided by the status of, agreement, status of forces agreement uh, that was uh, negotiated by Bush and left Iraq before it was cooked, you might say, into modernity. Now, how long that would have taken, who knows? But at any rate, I think we can all see that the withdrawal from Iraq, in retrospect, I actually supported it. I was on Ob Obama's side. I thought, you know, let these people fight it out. But boy, it's hard to underestimate the level at which the violence and the, uh, you know, pugilistic nature of pre-modern people. And so we had Maliki come in and, you know, it just basically turned into a, a, a sectarian fight, which is why Obama has changed his tune when it comes to Afghanistan. And it turns out that we're not going to leave Afghanistan as planned, that we're going to leave at least 10,000 troops there indefinitely, which is probably the right way to go. So let's say that what we've learned is that if we're going to take the lid off of one of these dictator-governed countries, that we have to stay in there long enough 
to let the forces of modernity, uh, you know, women being free, uh, no honor killings, uh, no Sharia law, a, a more modern uh, legal system, that getting that installed takes a, a long, long time and a long commitment. And it's what we refer to in America as nation building. And that has become a dirty word in our culture. And so, you know, there's a argument, and we hear it, particularly from the left, that says, why don't we just withdraw now and let them fight their own battles? Uh, one of the main proponents of this is uh, Bill Maher in, in his show, um, Real Time. And he points out, and I think this is a really good point, that there are over 5 million soldiers in uniform in the Arab world. There are approximately 30,000 members of ISIS. Why don't we let the Arabs take care of it? Both the Shia and the Sunnis are anti-American, and yet they're the enemies of each other. As Bill Maher said, you know, all we have to do is withdraw and let them fight it out, and all we need is popcorn. That means all we need is to sit back and watch the show. But I think what we're realizing is that this would be a show that we don't want to have to watch and because it's so brutal and because we have cameras in there and you know it was different when there was the boat people in Vietnam and the you know the, the two or three years after World War II were arguably maybe not as brutal as World War II but Jesus there was a lot of mayhem and killing that continued but we weren't aware of it you know unless we were right there but we would be now and that's an interesting dilemma of modernity, is that we actually have a modern morality that wants to help if we can, and we have to determine what that even means or how that's even possible. Uh, and it's not just a movie that we'd be watching. Uh, what we're seeing with Syria is that war zones create desperate people, refugees, people who want to get out of there, people like desperate people everywhere in all times, in all wars, who will do anything they can to get to a safer situation for themselves and their families. And that means, you know, the refugee invasion that we're seeing in Europe right now and that we're debating uh, in the United States as well. And it's not like we can turn it off. So, you know, we actually, it turns out, it's not just a moral dilemma of letting pre-modern people fight it out. It's actually a real problem because they want to escape. So, you know, the, the, the thinking now among, you know, military and, and State Department and people who think about these things, Obama, his team, is how do we help people develop in place? You know, we have a lot of pre-modern people. We have all of Africa with, you know, center of gravity, pre-modern and tribal. And we have to figure out a way so that people can develop in place. Now, we know from an integral perspective that you can be at the red warrior stage of development and still be healthy. That's where you fight your battles in sports, uh, in games, and initiations and different ways of expressing that red, juicy power, you know, domination uh, dynamic that happens at that stage. And that there are ways to be more or less healthy in the amber traditionalist stage, the fundamentalist stage. And that, um, you know, as a modern and postmodern world or center of gravity of the, of the world's power, I, mean, I mentioned before that 70% of the world's people is pre, are pre-modern. But 
80 or 90% of the world's power is in the hands of modern people because modern's more powerful. So we want to help people develop in place. Uh, the next point I want to make is something that we hear from the, particularly the people on the right. Uh, in, in America, for sure, the Republican Party, there's a, there's a presidential campaign going on. So, of course, Republicans are very invested in creating an image of the world being on fire and everything going to hell and so forth. And uh, that's, of course, the message of the right wing in Europe. And, you know, why can't we deal with this? You know, these are 30,000 people who are in, you know, they, they found a safe haven in, in Raqqa, Syria. And, you know, why can't we deal with them? And the truth is that we could. We could have ISIS wiped off the face of the earth by the end of next week. You know, and, and, and the way we would do that is the same way we did 70 and 75 years ago when we were fighting the Nazis and the, you know, militant nationalist Japanese. We firebomb, we strafe, we nuke. You know, it was 70 years ago, August, that we dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But you notice that in our modern world, there's not one credible voice arguing for that. I mean, Ann Coulter occasionally will, you know, talk about bombing people back to the Stone Age, but, you know, she's sort of the exception that proves the rule. There are others, but... You know, in terms of presidential candidates, nobody's arguing for that. And that's because we're at a modern stage of moral development where we can't tolerate doing that. It's, it's, it's an interesting and really, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, it's a very encouraging thing. You know, we hear that the pundits talk about how, you know, the, the reason that no candidates are arguing that we should have troops on the ground in the Middle East is that America is so war-weary after our, you know, 11-year war in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we've lost 4,000 people, and it's cost us $2 trillion, and that's a lot, you know? But in the Civil War, we lost 2% of the population, or the equivalent of over 6 million people today. Can you imagine that? In World War II, we lost 400,000 soldiers. In Vietnam, we lost 58,000. Again, Iraq and Afghanistan together is less than 4,000. Plus, in those earlier wars, there was a draft. So no young man was safe from service. And they were far bigger strains on far smaller economies. You know, the Iraq war started in 2003. It's cost us upwards of $2 trillion. In that same amount of time, the cumulative gross domestic product of the United States is somewhere around $120 trillion. So we've spent somewhere between 1% and 2% of our GDP on wars. That's not insignificant, but it's not a deal killer. It's, it's, it's affordable. But yet, it's still true. We are war-weary. And what I think Integral helps us see is that when people become modern, they're war-weary on behalf of humanity. I mean, we're finally over this 15,000-plus years of human warfare. And that's something that is just an emergent quality that comes from the development of consciousness. And so we have 
you know, the kinds of wars that we're fighting with drones. And of course, I hear people talk about, particularly liberals, talk about the horrors of our drone warfare. Then, you know, I agree. It's, you know, we hear about when it hits a wedding party or it hits innocent civilians. Uh, but, you know, unless you're a pacifist, and, you know, that's a legitimate point of view, uh, then you have to ac accept that there is going to be collateral damage uh, with any military um, campaign. And the drones offer the least of civilian casualties and the most pointed uh, lethal, you know, action where we, you know, can target one side of a building instead of knocking the whole thing down or, as we did in World War II, knock the whole town down. Uh, I, for those of you who might remember, I, I did a really fascinating interview with an integrally informed Navy SEAL, Jake Bullock, about a year or so ago. And, you know, I think many of us who listened to that interview, I certainly was, were astonished at the amount of training and emphasis that goes into uh, the making of a Navy SEAL. Uh, you know, of course, these are special forces. Uh, the emphasis on not killing civilians, of not had it, having collateral damage. And if you do, that that's a big black mark against you. That's an astonishing evolution in the art of warfare, if you will. And so, you know, we're not really willing to do what it takes to obliterate ISIS. So we're in some middle ground of uh, nation building, uh, taking out the centers of gravity of the enemy, and of tolerating some success on their part. And there's an, uh, I, I think there's a really interesting model of what that looks like, uh, and that's Israel. Israel is an island of modernity. Now, of course, there are many pre-modern Israelis, but as a center of gravity of culture, Israel's a modern country, sitting in a pre-modern sea of people who hate them. And they have tolerated incursions and uh, suicide bombings. And, you know, they have a, a, a sort of a cultural model of clean them up, uh, don't put any uh, memorials there, and just um, move on for the next day. And people can do that. And Israel has thrived as a culture uh, by doing that. Now, of course, they've also been brutal in ways that make us uh, a little question their, their, their morality. Um, they have built a wall that we think is uh, maybe too much. But it is a model of how modern countries can tolerate this kind of, um, you know, asymmetric warfare. So let's look at the people that were actually fighting, the perpetrators. And, you know, one of the things I want to say is that from an integral perspective, from a historical perspective, most of the members of ISIS are just garden variety, plain vanilla, holy warriors. These are men and women too, but mostly men who are willing to kill and die for their God, for their people, and for, you know, doing the right thing. We hear people talk about their brutality and their nihilism. They're brutal, but they're the opposite of nihilistic. They're actually seeking meaning. Uh, they're, they're actually 
their their recruiting is directed to young Muslims who are actually living nihilistic lives, where they're second class citizens in their host countries. And you know, ISIS comes along and says, "What are you willing to do for your people? Are you willing to be a man? Are you willing to fight for your God, for your women and children?" They talk about spirit force. How strong is your spirit force? Are you willing to be a martyr? Or are you going to sit around and shop and watch television and be a second-class lackey in an infidel world? And that is a powerful message. It's the opposite of nihilism. And so, you know, in a sense, that's good news. Because what modern cultures really have to do with these subcultures of pre-modern people, particularly young people, who are in their midst is figure out a way to offer them a path forward, of offering them meaning that is meaningful to them. And it's not secular. I mean, there has to be room for their religion. There has to be room for their God. And so, you know, Europe is about to embark on a huge experiment, particularly Germany, that's taking in 100,000 of these uh, refugees. A, a grand experiment in how to modernize people so that we don't get these you know, islands of nihilism and psychopath, which we're always probably going to have some of that. I mean, there are people who are just arrested at a sort of destructive red. These are the Dylan Klebolds of the world. These are the, you know, the, in America, we see them ra um, raise their profile every now and then with these school shootings and stuff. These are people who are often loners and, you know, they just want a destruction. Of course, the great example of that is the Joker, in uh, the Batman series. I just want to watch the world burn. There are people like that. And of course, they're drawn to mayhem. And so ISIS is, uh, you know, replete with this psychodynamic as well, which is why I was listening to one of the generals this morning talk about how ISIS is good at being terrorists, but they're not good at being soldiers. And that that is an, an issue. Uh, so, you know, but we have this mix of, of, I think, a small number, a small percentage of just real psychopaths. But for the most part, these are young people who are looking for meaning, and there are other options for these people. Corey was pointing that out, actually, in the chat. Yes. About, we see major geopolitical decisions being made that are influenced by magical thinking around the concept of apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah, and it's true for these uh, Muslim terrorists as it is for our American evangelists. Yeah, no, that's right. And that's so scary, actually, to have people who are in power who actually have the idea that there is an inevitable apocalypse, that good and evil are going to come to some great battle, and that our job is to fight and even die. I worry about the people who are truly pre-modern in that belief. And those are the people who are, we see them, you know, they're living in caves, they're on the battlefield, they are actually out, you know, thinking that today is a good day to die. And for them, you know, creating the caliphate or becoming a martyr, both of those two things are good. And those are the two options. But then we do have people who are, you know, they live in palaces, they, you know, they travel, 
They actually are part of the modern world, and they might still have that sort of rhetoric and ideology of apocalypse. But when it comes right down to it, they want to live. And those are the people I'm a little more comfortable with, but they're both in the field here. And we have to, you know, make distinctions about who we're dealing with. For instance, the mullahs of Iran, you know, they talk about the apocalypse. They talk about eliminating Israel. Do they really want to die in the process? Do they really want their Switzerland-educated children to die in the process? I don't think so. But that's different than people who are in the caves, you know, basically with that today is a good day to die mindset. Okay, so I wanted to also take a look at something that has really become a big story in particularly, I think it's for sure in, in Europe as well, but in the States, and that's, you know, dealing with these refugees from Syria. And, um, you know, it's almost an embarrassing problem here in the United States where we talk about Obama wanting to bring in 10,000 of them, and, and now we have all of the Republican governors saying that not in my state, and it's become a big political issue, but we shouldn't let any of them in. And we can really see a polarization of the liberal and conservative mindset here. My liberal friends say that conservatives, when they think about this, ought to put themselves in the position of a refugee. And we should realize that these refugees are people just like us who are themselves running from ISIS. And a lot of these people are modern, they're educated, their women are free, they're productive, they're sympathetic, good people, they have children. And, you know, to put ourselves in their position is actually an amazing achievement of human consciousness to put yourself in the position of the other, particularly the, the other who is suffering. It's a spiritual practice in many traditions, and it's a worthy one. So I think that is a good challenge from liberals to conservatives, to put yourself in these people's position. And I would also say that there is another challenge that can come back from the conservatives to the liberals. And let's offer this thought experiment for liberals. Let's just say that we do what the liberals suggest, which is to allow 10,000 plus 10,000 Syrians into the country, or Germany with 100,000. And we do our very best to check them out and to vet them. But if, you know, the system is imperfect and one or a few holy warriors get through the system, and they cause some kind of mayhem that you, Mr. or Ms. Liberal, agree that that mayhem that they inflict is inflicted on you and your family. So as long as we can sort of get that sorted out, then that's good too. So again, asking you to exchange yourself for others. You become the person who is the victim of the um, you know, wild card jihadi that gets through the system. And you realize at that point, with that thought experiment, that this is not so easy, you know? And yet, we have to sort it out. And this is what our leaders do. And they do a thankless job. I mean, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the pickle that Obama is in, and Angela Merkel, and, and Hollande in France, and all of these people. Uh, I thank goodness that this is a thought experiment for me, that I actually don't have to experience the consequences of my decision. So, um, 
you know, when we look at what will help us move forward, from again, from a bigger perspective, one of the things that modern cultures have to do, and we see it even within our own culture, without you know any jihadis added, is that modern people have to figure out a way to accommodate the mythic and magic worlds of pre-modern people. They have to make room for pre-modern people's God. Now, we do here because we have this idea of, of, of a public and private space. You know, it, 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 modernity, a mature modernity, realizes that every person, again, is sovereign. Every person can think what he wants to think and believe what he wants to believe and worship however he wants to worship in private or, you know, in, in some uh, collective situation. But the, they can't voice that on other people. And that is a modern achievement that we have to help pre-modern people move into. And the, really, the best way to do that is to appreciate what pre-modern people have. And what they have is something that, in some ways, modern people don't. And that is a sense that life is juicy and meaningful. And that there is a world beyond our own individual needs. That there is a God in heaven. That there is a, a sacred calling. You can feel, you know, even as I talk about that, that there is something that arises out of the belly and solar plexus and heart. That secular people, you know, the, the secular world asks us to collapse all of that meaning and interiority and beauty and the love of God itself to exteriors, to the, you know, these are basically just, you know, artifacts of synaptic activity that has been useful for the genome to further itself in the selfish gene. <laughs> That's not very appealing. So, you know, there's a special, I, I think one of, the, one of the things that I would recommend is that People take a look at a paper that was written by Steve McIntosh in the Institute for Cultural Evolution called Fostering Evolution in Islamic Culture. And the thesis of the paper is that as modernists and postmodernists and integralists for sure, that we want to appreciate the particular um, flavor of Islam, which is above all else a experience of the love of God, a devotion to God. They pray five times a day. And, you know, the, the sense of devotion, the sense of being, of, of the suffering and pain of being separated from God, of the gift of being obedient, that this is very, very juicy and real for Muslims. And it's actually something that from an evolutionary perspective, you know, we want to knit that in to a new sacred world. We want to knit in the gifts of all the great religions, the gifts of the understanding of emptiness, the love of God. Um, all of Every religion has its own particular flavor and karmic stream that will be part of the fabric of the sacred world to come. And we get, you know, uh, we'll get all of it. But uh, in the meantime, we have to be friendly to each strand uh, as it arises here. All right. We have a, a question from one of our people, 
Connie, right, Brett? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I love hearing from you. I get lots of feedback. Uh, you, can, you can get with me at jeff at dailyevolver.com by email, or you can go to the website dailyevolver.com, and there's a button there uh, called SpeakPipe where you can leave a voicemail. And I get lots of voicemails, and um, uh, I, I like to respond to them, some of them on the show. So last week we talked a lot about an integral conception of soul because we had just done the integral living room and we've you know, been spending a lot of time and attention on that. And so I got a response from one of the listeners, Connie. So let's play that. I think it's like a minute and a half, and then I'll respond. Hi, Jeff. My name is Connie. I live in Los Angeles. I am uh, an author and a spiritual teacher and um, a liberal. My question to you after listening to your uh, discussion about soul is if your tradition or if your belief system does indeed believe in wholeness, does indeed believe that we are all one, does indeed believe in the, the unity of everything since the Big Bang, why do you still speak of soul as if it were a separate entity? I hear you saying my soul and your soul and his soul. In my experience, soul is the unifying field, a united field of information from which we all draw, and it pulls us all not one at a time, but all toward a new way of being, eternally pulling us all. Why does it still sound like a one-man, one-soul world when I listen to uh, integral discussions about soul? Thank you, Connie. That's a terrific question. And it really uh, brings up a lot of, uh, or a couple really important issues that confuse people, I think. And a lot of it really just depends on how you want to slice and dice unity, if you will. Connie and I are both using the same word, soul, uh, to mean some different things. So let's sort that out for a second and then see where we are. When you talk about this unity of everything and this wholeness and this unified field since the Big Bang, um, that is, from a religious standpoint, uh, both the West and the Eastern religions would consider that the realm of the absolute. Saints and sages of all times and place agree that there is a dimension of reality that is both infinite and eternal. That is, it's infinite in that it, well, it's not infinite in the sense that it's bazillions and bazillions of miles. It's infinite in the sense that it is a dimension within which space arises. So it's outside of space. And it's also eternal, not that it's bazillions of years old, but that it is beyond time, or it is a space within which time and space arise. So this bigger space, if you will, and space is even a dicey word, but this bigger reality within which time and space are, is arising, or which in, within which time and space are arising, that space, that bigger space is unborn, it's undying, it wasn't created, it doesn't evolve, which is interesting to, you know, integralists, you know, no evolving in the absolute space. God doesn't evolve, you know, emptiness doesn't evolve. And you actually, from many religions, you're not even allowed to say anything about it. Uh, in the famous line from the Tao, it says, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. And of course, in the West, there's traditions, the Jewish tradition, you can't say the name of God. And in Islam, 
you not only can't say the, you know, or, well, you could say the name of God, but you can't uh, represent him in uh, art or uh, statues or paintings. You can't do humans at all. The human form is prohibited in Islam because there's no way to get, there's no way to represent this dimension of reality within which everything arises. So our minds can't really go there, but our hearts can, and our guts and our loins, you know, we, we can get there in those ways, and we can feel, and we're, we can feel our, feel our calling. It's like, I think you're right, Connie, we, we are called to that realization of oneness, uh, or the absolute love of God from Western tradition. So, again, in the West, it's the, God is the Alpha and Omega. In the East, it's emptiness. And there's a t- taboo about talking too much about it. Um, so that's the absolute realm. That's that realm of unity. And then there's the world of form, uh, the world of manifest reality, multiplicity, everything that's happening, my life, me, you, it, you know, the world, the weather, my dog. And from an integral perspective, it's not just all these things that are part of the world of form, but it's also my consciousness itself. Consciousness, the, the quadrants in integral theory, they're part of form. They're not part of the world of the absolute. So my thoughts, my individual Jeffness, my feelings, my body sensations, my subtle energies, these are all part of the world of form. And they're, they're all liberated to the degree that I can realize that their source is in the absolute. And I'll say that again, that all my feelings, body sensations, subtle energies, all of those things are liberated to the degree that I realize, capital R, realize their source in the absolute. And that's a wonderful thing, you know, to to be able to feel that I'm in the lap of God. No matter what happens to me, I'm safe. All is well. And Or that I can turn inward from the Eastern perspective. And I can examine my own suffering and tease apart the strands of my own suffering to see that there's no inherent existence to any of it. And that softens the whole experience. So, um, you know, why do we have sort of an individual soul versus a collective soul? Well, from an integral perspective, we have both. Uh, We certainly do have the collective soul of humanity that is, you know, it's not reducible to individual souls. It's its own juicy thing. And I always love the word, it's full of louche, that sort of liquid space between us, where we're all swimming in that same sea of consciousness. And we can see from uh, an integral perspective that the world of form or the world of our collective unconsciousness is indeed magnetized to, you know, grow. That there is a world soul that is evolving. You know, the world of form does evolve. And so we do do that collectively. But we also do that individually. And this is one of the things that I think is really sort of interesting in terms of what's coming up in the integral world now. The work of Ken when he talks about spirit in first, second, and third person. Steve McIntosh when he talks about the enduring polarity between the absolute non-dual realization and the absolute love of God. That there's, there's a polarity there that we can work with both of those things. And that individually, I do have a Jeffness that precedes this life and maybe survives this life. Uh, And 
I don't know that for a fact because this stuff is unknowable in terms of, you know, the ways that we think that we need to know facts. But it still offers me a path of practice. And so I want to do that both collectively and see that I'm part of the bigger community and part of the bigger, the biggest community of humanity itself and life itself. And that within that, I am also this particular Jeff thing that has never existed before and never will again. And both of those things are very exciting and very juicy. So, you know, that's my best stab at an answer there. All right. Brett, play, what is it, three or four minutes of comments? Two minutes and 30 seconds. All right. Hi, Jeff. Uh, John Bartlett here from Springfield, Missouri. I need to say how much I enjoy and admire your show. I particularly enjoyed your recent look at the soul of conservatism. As someone who's been around the track more times than seemed possible, but always with a deep felt genetic conservative disposition. I so much appreciate your take on my small corner of the integral world. As a personal aside, how I chuckled and resonated with your observation of an Enneagram 5 desperate for his cozy fireside chair where he can sit alone and think. You were right on about your observation that the good component of the big three is the best and probably only effective way out of the five sometimes painful isolation. Thanks again for your good work. Your outreach is so very welcome. Hey, Jeff, this is Peter from Toronto, Canada. I just finished listening to Transrational Theory of the Soul. Great show as usual. Um, I'm a big fan, obviously. I did have one uh, challenge with the show, and that had to do with the topic of conservatism and how it relates to integral theory. Um, I did not find the arguments that were presented by the guest compelling in any way. In fact, I found that uh, the, uh, the case was confused and also uh, undermined any argument that conservatism should be placed on the same developmental stage as liberalism. Quite quickly, there was a conflation between political theory and the psychologies that come and the values that come with each of the, um, how we might define conservative and, and liberal, uh, and it was conflated with political partisanship. I think it's quite clear that there is a disconnect of sorts that is so messy on the right that one cannot take it seriously at all as, as any kind of political theory anymore. There is massive blind spots uh, there and huge psychological issues, to be honest with you, that I see and, and emotional issues that are wreaking havoc on the world from climate change to the injustices uh, that we, that's out there too. Uh, hi, Jeff. This is uh, Noel here. Just wanted to say thank you for this beautiful talk with uh, Ama. It uh, really touched my heart. As you say, I think she has a power of transmission, and I'm very happy to see how she's uh, doing so well in the U.S. So thank you, Jeff, for all the connections you allow through your radio show. Thank you so much for your feedback. It's really such a privilege to be engaging these issues from an integral perspective and to know that uh, I'm not alone and that you're sort of noodling this out with me gives me, uh, you know, I just basically can't believe my luck that I get to do this with the likes of all of you. So again, thank you for listening to The Daily Evolver. This is Jeff Salzman signing off. See you next week.